Welcome to the Legal Flow Podcast. My name is Patrick Barnes. I'm a practicing attorney in Tampa, Florida, and I'm also the owner of Legal Flow Consulting. I am really excited to get this podcast going because it really started as a casual conversation, actually, with our first guest, and I think is building into something that's new and exciting and really important for the field. This podcast is geared for lawyers or paralegals or anyone else that may be experiencing um, some of the mental health stuff we're going to talk about. So we're going to cover lots of areas of the legal profession, um, one being mental health, how to deal with compassion fatigue, secondary trauma, burnout, something that I think most attorneys have experienced, whether they, they know it or not. In addition to that, we're going to talk about technology, legal technology, which kind of is at a crossroads with mental health in that if you can be more certain that you're organized and that your task list um, is, is up to date, and the easier you can make that happen, the more likely you are to do it, whether your data is secure, and trying your best to automate or make simpler the mundane stuff that really can bog down uh, those in the profession. So legal technology right now is booming, and we're going to look into a lot of that and find some easier ways to streamline your practice. Let's get into our first guest. Um, He is a PhD in marriage and family therapy. He has a master addiction counselor and a licensed professional counselor. He serves as the chief clinical officer at the Foundry Treatment Center in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. He speaks nationally on all sorts of different topics, including the topic of today, trauma. And last but certainly not least, he's my dad. So let's get into it with Dr. Michael Barnes on the topic of compassion fatigue, secondary trauma, and effectively representing the traumatized clients. Good evening, Dr. Barnes. How's it going? Going very well. Patrick, how are you? I'm doing well. As I said in the intro, uh, you are both the the trauma expert, but you're also my dad. So I'm going to call you Dr. Barnes, though. Sure. This makes more sense. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I thought you were the, the perfect first guest for this podcast, because this is kind of where it all began, was just a informal conversation you and I had about trials and tribulations of, of working in the legal profession. Mm-hmm. Um, if some of the, I, you know, obviously telling you how I felt and kind of some of the symptoms that we're now finding, or at least, you know, you and I are talking about to, to various groups is, is secondary trauma burnout. Mm-hmm. And at the time I just, you know, I thought maybe I was just a lousy attorney and I needed to get out of the field. And um, so we kind of snowballed it. We, we kind of said, you know, you're, and we'll talk about your background in a second, but you, we started applying some of the concepts that the professions that you talk to all the time um, to my profession. And it kind of mm-hmm. just made perfect sense. Yeah. And so then we, we, so we've been speaking on this topic. We've been, you know, going to different bar associations and, and uh, doing lectures and, and whatnot for on, on uh, compassion fatigue and secondary trauma in the legal profession, having um, what we're, we're calling trauma-informed legal practice, and it's mm-hmm. kind of snowballed. So, and now we're, I'm starting a podcast to, about, you know, kind of a, the crossroads between all these different things that affect attorneys' mental health. So I felt you're a, a perfect first uh, guest for it. So welcome. Yeah, I'm honored. It's, um, 
You know, the interesting thing is a comment that someone had made on one of our law line presentations, and that was, wow, they gave names to things that I have been experiencing for a long time. And it does fit, the legal profession does fit compassion fatigue very closely. Um, burnout and secondary trauma are huge parts of it in a field that has never really allowed its members to like have that like have that um experience you know it was always seen as being you shouldn't have that experience or tough it out but it it, it fits perfectly yeah and i guess yeah I mean, the attorneys when we think of ourselves when we were with our colleagues is you got to be bulletproof you're 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 perfect and and for some reason we never really let that that down that guard down and mm -hmm. i think and as we'll talk about in in a in a couple of minutes, I think that's changing. Um, you know, I don't know if it's generational or what it is, but attorneys are saying, "Look, I'm I don't want to feel like this," and so we're trying to figure out why we do because we do love what we do. So why is the mm -hmm. thing that we love doing this right and making us feel this way? And right. so I, I think this is the natural progression of of it. And as you can probably attest to, professions are, have been doing this for decades. Well, the first, you know, discussion that I, the first time I ever heard the term compassion fatigue was in the early 1990s. And it was from a professor at UCLA who was working with nurses in uh, emergency rooms. And um, she sent a letter to my mentor who said, wow, what you guys call secondary trauma, we call compassion fatigue. And that really was the impetus to begin to look at so what is what are we actually talking about and it really is that you know we use that infinity symbol of burnout and secondary trauma feeding off of each other and so uh yeah you know the mental health world's been doing this now for 20 plus years i think there's a level of maybe people think lawyers and i think this applies to like doctors and surgeons is like if we're going to put something that's completely out of our control into someone else's hands that you know, you you can't really view them as flawed. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Like, you know, if I have a legal situation, I'm bringing it to an attorney. That they're they're not a flawed human like everyone else because then you you know you lose that like like if I thought I'm going to like a cardiologist who's going to save my life, that person is, I guess, maybe not susceptible to having a bad day right before surgery or or whatever it might be. And, and right. so maybe we're all just realizing, hey, we are human, just like everybody else. I think that's a great way of looking at it. And that, but but I'll tell you something else. And and you and I were at a conference in Denver a couple of years ago, and we were first proposing this topic. And I remember one of the attorneys that you were talking to had this sort of puzzled look on his face. And the more you talked, the more you could see it starting to click. And I, I wonder if the older school attorneys actually see themselves as helping professions, meaning they're somehow different. It's, it's not like being a therapist where you're helping someone, but in reality, you are every bit as much a helping professional with people who are struggling with these incredible traumatic events that they want some kind of closure on, some kind of justification, some justice for. 
And, um, you know, I think as law schools are looking more and more at that shift from year one to year three and in increased depression and increased um, kind of secondary trauma, um, I think we used the term that that it can no longer be ignored. It has to, the field has to begin to help right. its young attorneys. So, well, and when we do our presentations, we present the statistics about, um, you know, attorneys leaving the field within the first five years and leaving oh, the, yeah. the same the firm they started with it within the first three years, and they're staggering numbers. And so, if you think about if that's if that's how many people are leaving the profession, um, you know, early, then it's got to be, it's got to be a situation where it's just, it's just, um, you know, I guess unpreparedness from a mental health perspective, I guess. But mm -hmm. so, so tell us, um, give us a little background. Um, obviously, as I said in the intro, you have a PhD in marriage and family therapy. You're a licensed mm -hmm. professional counselor, and you're currently the chief clinical officer at Steamboat Treatment Center, which is, or I'm sorry, at Foundry uh, Treatment Center in Steamboat. Yeah. Um, but tell us kind of how did you get to sitting where you are as far as from a trauma perspective? Well, I had always, I had been an addiction counselor for about eight years prior to going back to school. And I was uh, very fortunate to have gotten um, um, an assistantship with a, a very um, world-renowned trauma therapist and trauma um, researcher, Charles Figley, and and um, based on um, you know uh, your accident with when you got hit by the car, um, that really opened the door for me to start shifting away from addiction to shifting towards trauma and understanding. What happens to a family? What happens to a system when a trauma happens to someone that you love or that you care about? Um, and that really became the the impetus for this and all the work that I do today is um, really I'm um, more of I'm doing more family therapy today or more family coaching with traumatized families now than I ever did. And when you're uh, starting and, to integrate trauma into addiction right and that they yeah, don't exist independently or most of the time they don't yeah it's um you know the research says that there are three ways that people become addicted one is genetics or what we tend to look at epigenetics the idea of how the environment that someone lives in turns genes on or turns them off self-medication which is trauma and then the third one is really living in an environment where heavy drug and alcohol use is the norm. And I think that we're, we're at a point now where we're beginning to really understand that we just have to assume everyone in the addiction world has some kind of trauma, whether it's PTSD, whether it's developmental trauma, whether it's you know, trauma associated with their addiction. Um, you know, I, the research that we've done tells us that 35% of our clients have post-traumatic stress disorder, and then probably another 30% have some kind of developmental trauma from growing up in a family with addiction or mental health issues. And, you know, many, many listeners may be aware of the, all the work that's being done with adverse childhood events, 
these days and understanding the medical consequences um, of growing up in that kind of stressful environment. So, um, well, and going yeah, back to I, what going to add some context to, for the listeners, um, you mentioned my accident. So I got hit by a car when I was five crossing a road. Um, my mom witnessed it and, uh, mm -hmm. you were, uh, you were at one of your, I guess, you were in your PhD program. So you were like at some sort of a class or some, something. I, I was in my, in the clinic, um, supervising, the police, yeah, supervising and the clinic, uh, police officer came in and, and told me what happened. So, mm -hmm. so that kind of turned you from, from focusing on addiction at the time and moving more towards trauma and its effects on the family. Yeah, it was 1991 and I started looking in the, you know, your doctor, I'm a doctoral student. What do I do but read research? And I went to find research to tell me what we might as a family experience. And there just really wasn't any research or very little research. Um, and so um, that that just changed everything that became the the central focus of my career from that point forward. And then I, I kind of left hospital administration and went into academics and taught for 10 years full time before returning to, you know, back to the addiction world where I had finally put the pieces together of a model that I wanted to, to use for trauma integrated addiction treatment and trauma integrated family treatment. Hmm. Well, I guess you're welcome then, right? In a weird way. Yeah. I used to kid you. I don't know if you remember, but I used to say that you didn't have to get hit by a car to give me a dissertation topic that I could have figured that out all by myself. But, uh, but I will say thanks for the yeah. opportunity. So we, you know, we've been down this, this road of trying to figure out how do we take what's been studied, what's been, you know, just lectured on and written about on all these different professions, whether that be nursing or police, first responders, teachers, uh, therapists, mental health counselors, and say, okay, let's kind of um, like almost reverse engineer it back for attorneys because mm -hmm. there isn't a lot of research on it for attorneys. From at least it's what growing. It's growing. It is. It's definitely growing. It's it's become a, a much more common term to say, mm -hmm. hey, you know. What do you know about compassion fatigue? And people, instead of kind of raising an eyebrow at you, they, they some attorneys are becoming more familiar with it, and they're becoming you're hearing the term legal informed. I'm sorry, trauma informed legal practice more. Um, yes, and I think that I think that it's factioning off from what it basically, and it's in no matter how it's presented, it's a good thing. But yeah, there's a group of like let's just call, I don't know what you want to call us, right? Like some of us are attorneys, some of us aren't, um, but that are doing this legal trauma-informed legal practice. And a lot of them are attorneys and they're yes. kind of looking to change the system. Um, you know, whether that be like institutional change in the court system, not re-traumatizing victims, like during the, you know, the, the proceedings and, and, and whatnot, um, and making sure that attorneys are aware of our effects during the actual court proceedings and the, the legal process about how re-traumatizing it is for people who have already been through terrible trauma. And I think that's amazing. And then, and I think what we're doing, which is not dissimilar, but it, 
It's more, what are the effects of trauma on the legal professional, right? Um, because obviously, which we'll get into in a little bit, but dealing with traumatic material constantly has its, a toll on you, right? And you become yeah, secondarily traumatized. So it's kind of interesting there that it, it is growing, but there's like kind of almost like factions of it. Um, I think it's all good and it's all, it's all stuff we all obviously need to be aware of as a profession, but it is, you know, it's, it's kind of almost like um, it's becoming specialized. Is that, was that your understanding as we're kind of going through this? Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think that there's a growing body of knowledge about um, how traumatized clients challenge the existing legal system, meaning the legal process and the idea of consistency across testimony and from the event to the deposition to the, to the trial and how trauma memories are processed differently and how attorneys have to learn how to manage those things differently than maybe they did in the past and um and to not be frustrated with these traumatized clients who are highly anxious and um you know boy you can t i love the story like the i love the hypothetical client that you created for our last presentation but yeah, we kind of we kind of start our presentations off with uh what i can't remember what what her name is but it's like you know essentially karen so to speak you know but um it's kind of like gung-ho about hiring a lawyer but then after your initial consult like doesn't get the documents into you she doesn't follow any of your instructions she you know and from like a litigation perspective she doesn't answer discovery she doesn't return she calls you you know many many times maybe a day but doesn't ever follow through with the things that you say and she's you know highly um she she's highly like fight or flight all the time everything is a is a situation every phone call is intense and so we go through this like hypothetical of just kind of piecemealed things that i've experienced at least through my years of practice and then, you know, we say, like, does that person sound familiar, right? And is she what attorneys would dub a difficult client, right? And you kind of go like, oh, Karen's back on the phone again. Okay, well, that's mm -hmm. the third time today we've already been through this. Or yesterday we had a long conversation and she wants to rehash it. And we and what we're doing is we're basically saying, you need to change your mindset and say, Karen's not a difficult client. Karen's a traumatized client. I think that goes across not only what, what I do, which is personal injury, but across family law, um, you know, whatever the case might be, work injury. It, the reason she's probably coming to your office is because of some adverse event that likely, ha you know, involved trauma. And and she's there for your help. But but based on the symptoms, which we'll get into, it, it's, not, it's not that simple, right? She... She's checking you out to ensure that she's safe and will not be re-traumatized or will not, you know, endure another trauma the same way you're checking her out to see, is she yeah. a, a, an accurate historian? Is she going to be good on the stand? Is she, you know, she doesn't listen when we're on the phone because more than likely she's probably in some sort of, you know, a heightened really? state by even being in the room with you or on the phone with you. 
So yeah, I think that's kind of a, a good way to to give real life example of someone ever of somebody you know probably to like some dr dramatized uh, extent that everyone's met as an attorney. But to say like, what if we look at her in a completely different light? Um, and I will say, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and it's not just the attorney. It's for the whole, it's the whole team. Right. It's the para, it's the paralegals who are getting like really are the people maybe that should be talking to this individual and they'll only talk to the attorney because right. this hypervigilance and this control and, and that, um, you know, we talk about organizational trauma and the idea that a traumatized client can um, impact every level of a, of a firm. Um, and it's not just the attorney, it's um, the attorney who doesn't call someone back because they're exhausted. And then it falls back on the paralegal who's now upset at the attorney. And, and there are just so many, like, there are so many things that can play out. Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, people just think is inherent to the legal process, but maybe isn't. Maybe it's inherent to working with traumatized clients. Absolutely. I, I, and the more we do this and the more attorneys we get to talk with and hear their experience, the more I firmly believe that, that it's not the legal process. I mean, it is the legal process to some extent. Yeah. We talked about that one faction about trying to reform the system to be less re-traumatizing. And that's why that's so important, but also for the attorney and the staff to know, hey, you you are a helping profession. You said it at the beginning. Attorneys are starting to realize it's a helping profession any more than any other you know, doctor, physician, mental health counselor, you know, whatever it might be. And so we, we have to kind of understand, we have to understand what trauma looks like when it walks through the door, right? Mm. Um, what would you say, you know, before we get into like the... the the nuts and bolts of of compassion fatigue and, and trauma what would you say is the most interesting kind of takeaway from the reception in talking with lawyers and you know i know you, you mentioned the the gentleman like early early when we and just to set the stage on that we the first thing we ever did was we got a table at a convention and just started talking to people we like we didn't we weren't presenters at it we weren't you know sponsored people we were just kind of like two guys at a table trying to catch people here to just be like hey what if we what if we were to tell you that that the legal profession is traumatized and you know just yeah. kind of it was just an interesting experiment so like from that or from any other stuff that we've done what would you say is like the most interesting like reception or takeaway that that you've you've noticed well, I think that just the growing openness to the idea, um, you know, there are pockets where it's been pretty um, busy, like in Canada and in Australia, they, they seem to be maybe a little ahead of us um, in the United States in terms of being open to looking at it. But I, I will say that 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 table we had was really fun because you know, we had no idea what people were going to, how they were going to react. And they reacted exactly like we kind of anticipated they would, like yeah. puzzled, but interested. And now, you know, we've spoken at national conferences, we've spoken at local bars, and we uh, there's always a 
sort of growing um, openness to the topic. And I think to me right. that's, it's, it's, it's happening. Um, you know, there are law school professors publishing scholarly journal articles mm -hmm. on the topic now that just wasn't the case a couple of years ago. Right. I think, I think mine is that it's, um, it's like an, this topic is like an onion. And if you just kind of hand it to someone, they kind of like, what do you want me to do with that onion? But as you spend time and, and, and sitting at that table, there were some attorneys that gave us the time to really flesh it out. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the more that they spent, the more they were like, oh, yeah, you know what? And then they would be kind of throwing into the conversation as opposed to just staring at you blankly. And so it's kind of mm -hmm. like an onion that you got to peel the layers of this a little more. And it is more long form than just it's hard to elevator pitch the legal, you know, the trauma informed legal practice. You know what I mean? Yes. And so us trying to find the best forum to do that um, has been has been, I guess, the reception is there. It's just not immediate. It's take it's takes it takes time, I guess, to really kind of say, here's here it is. And let us flesh that out for you, I guess. The other thing that's that jumps out at me is we have had very little contact with leadership in firms. Right. And the people who seem really interested are the frontline uh, attorneys, particularly young attorneys who are, um, you know, struggling with the same things that <laughs> that you were struggling with that opened the door for us to even begin to talk about it. Right. And so um, I would love to. Um, you know, we're going to be speaking to a um, kind of a judge's bar here in a couple of weeks. And I think that'll be really interesting to hear what they have to say. And it would be interesting to get in front of partners mm -hmm. um, who may be really interested in the turnover figures and the financial cost. Um, but um, when we spoke to the law students, they were a little concerned about the the firms may not that they were working in may not be as interested as um, the attorneys are. Mm -hmm. And I Is think that your response was, yeah, I think the response was if if all out fails, make it about make it about the the cost, right? The cost of turnover, the cost of retention versus turnover, and how much does it cost to say we're going to probably lose thirty percent of our first to third year attorneys? You know, for this unknown reason, right? It's, we don't know why we have such high turnover until you start to actually look at it and you see why, which is you're burning them out and and they're not prepared. And and we'll, we'll get into that more about like the what can we do about it, you know? But but yeah, I mean, make it make it about the dollars if that's what it takes, right? Just say, okay, well, it's really expensive to to not address this. How about that, right? Um, well, and yeah. Then, and then and the numbers that aren't just turning over, but that are quitting, and the leaving the profession, yeah, yeah. The, the amount of student loans they have that they would that they're still paying when they leave the field, it's it's mm -hmm. catastrophic, yeah. really. So let let's get into it. Let's talk. I mean, because we've been kind of um, you know talking about it broadly, but let's let's get into trauma. I mean, you you being you know one of the preeminent trauma experts kind of elevator pitch us trauma what is it in a nutshell trauma is really anything that so from a from a kind of medical term terminology it's really 
kind of any kind of severely life-threatening um, circumstance or death to someone we love or someone who's close to us or injuries that are long-term sustaining disability uh, would be things that we would consider to be traumatic, uh, cancer, heart disease, heart attacks, things like that. But I think in the broader scope, it's anything that is so significant or that pro pro promotes um, a sense of being out of control or powerless to deal with or to change something that it kind of overwhelms our natural defense systems to be able to just sort of let it roll off our backs. It, it, we begin to worry about it. It, it actually um, changes the, the way the brain functions to where we um, assume the world is more dangerous than it actually is. And uh, a friend of mine uh, has, has said that, you know, it's the difference between being safe and feeling safe. And that, mm. you know, they may still be safe, but they don't feel safe anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's trauma. And, I, and you know, the, the diagnostic manual that we use in the, in the field has actually just added a, a piece to this, you know, who are traumatized people. And I think attorneys fit this fourth category really well. Like you had said, you know, you were trying, you were the person that got hit by the car. Your mom witnessed it. Mm -hmm. I dealt with it we, and we all were severely traumatized. And the fourth one is anyone who in their work responsibilities um, have to deal with repeated exposure to traumatic stories, to pictures, to images, to narratives. And I remember going into your office a couple of years ago and uh, some guys were working on a trial that had it was a really bad car accident. And there were these big pictures of the accident. And I yeah, actually asked. Trials at, trials at the yeah. yeah. And I asked. I asked you, how often do they look at those pictures? And you said, for hours daily, trying to figure out the right, the right process. And that's traumatized. Right. Like that sticks with you. That's hard to go home and not think about the fact that there was a person in that car. Well, especially when you're in a heightened state of, I guess, like tension and anxiety about trial, like when trial gets close, now you're blending you then you never not think about it right because you're planning yeah. your opening you're planning your closing your cross-examination adverse witness it, you start adding all that extra tension to a horrible situation you know in most in most i guess you know in car wrecks and not just personal injury that's just my experience but family law um, you know helping veterans yeah. no matter what i mean and and in listening to you kind of do the kind of what is trauma in a nutshell, everything that you were kind of thinking, I was in my head going, yep, that's a, something that some a lawyer somewhere deals with. You know, I even think about mm -hmm. like bankruptcy. A lot of bankruptcy comes from significant unexpected medical yeah. um, expenses, right? And so even a bankruptcy lawyer is going to have, have traumatized people in their office who don't want to be in there filing a bankruptcy, but they don't have any other choice because of something potentially um, – traumatizing the, the hand that they've been dealt. So yeah, I mean, anywhere from personal injury, which is kind of like, that's my world. And so I think about it always through that, but family law, domestic violence, 
you know, sexual abuse for prosecutors, defense attorneys, bankruptcy attorneys, work comp attorneys, um, anyone who de deals with social security disability, um, you know, I guess other than maybe like transactional law, um, which probably still has some of that in there. Um, you know, I, I do estate yeah. planning and sometimes people come to me because something happened to someone they know and they go, well, I don't want that to happen to me. And so I better come in here and get my ducks in a row. And so, yeah, I, I think I would challenge anyone to find a, a, <laughs> a faction of the legal uh, profession that doesn't deal with someone who has sustained trauma, you know, recently. Yeah. Yeah, I, so, I would agree. So you mentioned that, so obviously there's a chemical change after dealing with a trauma. Um, I won't have you get too too into the woods on the biology side of that, but sure. how does that come out in the legal sense? Like, let's say someone just sustained a significant trauma and they're now in your office trying to pick up the pieces and deal with whatever that was. What are you going to see from a biological standpoint that attorneys need to be aware of? Well, the first thing um, that I think about is how trauma memories are processed unlike any other kind of memory. And so we tend to remember the pictures of what's happening or the sounds of what was happening, the smells and tastes of what was happening. And that I, uh, we show a slide where the left side of the brain, our kind of analytical mind, where language lives, that allows us to build a story of what happens while it's happening is turned off. And so the right side of the brain, which is our sensory side of our brain, <clears throat> is what's really activated. So <clears throat> we would expect that as the person tells the story over and over, that it's going to change. They're going to remember different things, or there's going to be different images that they're going to remember. Or in the, in the form of telling you, the attorney, and you're responding to them, your response is going to either support certain parts of what they talk about. And so the next time they tell that story, they may accentuate the things that people react to when they tell the story. And so if you're looking for the same story the whole time, from event to deposition to, um, uh, to trial, that's probably not going to happen. And so that's one thing. Um, the so, second thing. Oh, go ahead. Before you go on to the second one, is there is there is there research or is is it known that different like heightened states change that ability to recall memory? Like, if you are like, let's just say you were put into like a hypnotic state, would the memory recall be different than if you were in a re-traumatized heightened state? I don't think so, and I, I haven't seen anything that <clears throat> says that. Um, I think it's kind of like uh, some of those memories just don't go from the from the windows to the hard drive. You know, it's, it just never gets there. It just never gets there, and so the story becomes semantic, which means that the reality of the story begins to shift the more we talk about it and the more we tell it, the more we contemplate it. And so, you know, someone goes to therapy and one of our goals in therapy is to help that client fill in the gaps in that story. And so 
Um, if someone's in therapy during the trial, they may have a very different story at the end of uh, therapy than they had at the beginning of therapy. So mm. the story itself can change. The second thing is, is that the part of the brain that is really most impacted is the limbic system of the brain, which is sort of the midbrain, which is our kind of um, smoke detector. Uh, uh, Van der Kolk, the very famous neuroscientist who studies trauma, says that it's like a smoke detector in your house and that when it smells smoke or senses smoke, it it sends out a message for everybody to react to that. And and so it, it tries to get the prefrontal cortex, the big part of our brain that has to do with memories and emotions and, and, and um, you know, uh, decision-making, things like that, to go out and check on what is this thing that's happening to us? And let's determine if it's, if it's scary, then we'll go into fight or flight and get out of harm's way. If it's good, then we'll want to learn as much as we can about it so we can mm -hmm. benefit from it. And what happens over time, and, um, and I think the term post-traumatic stress disorder is probably over time going to change post-traumatic stress injury as we begin to see changes in the functional um, aspects of the brain to where it always assumes that we're under threat. So because that idea of like they changed the word to injury because like a broken foot where you can see it. You're starting to the, the research is starting to show that there is actual biological change that you know whether it's through like a like a PET scan or some sort of brain read they can see it. Functional MRI is where the real research is being done to show the parts of the brain that light up and that activate you know uh, when thinking about trauma and how over time. I can't, I can't remember who did the research, but uh, I was at a conference recently where they were talking about if you show pictures to someone that um, when pictures are not familiar to them, that amygdala, the, the limbic system lights up and then the prefrontal cortex lights up in a process of learning and mm -hmm. in a process of evaluating. But if someone has post-traumatic stress disorder, when pictures are shown, the amygdala lights up, the limbic system lights up, but the prefrontal cortex no longer lights up. It's it's just assuming that it's dangerous. It's really? it's not even it's checking not even it out. To, to determine it. No, it's that's the change that becomes that when that person comes into your office, and you said it beautifully, they're 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 assessing you more than you're assessing them, or as much right. as you're assessing them, and that's why. You know, being prepared, being on time. Um, I always tell my staff, don't give a traumatized client a reason to act like a traumatized client. Mm -hmm. Be consistent. You know, be pleasant. Um, listen. Um, yep. Even if you've heard that story a thousand times from them, listen so that you can respond to them. Um, so that that need to be in control and that that constant hypervigilance is probably the biggest thing that impacts the practice of law because mm -hmm. that that client is constantly trying to figure out are are you really on my side are you right. safe or not yeah what yeah no i i think the hyper vigilance is and 
you know, as we talk about this more and more and as we, you know, kind of delve deeper into it, the more it changes my practice um, and I can actually apply these things. And I will say um, to anyone that is wondering whether this can actually change the way you practice, it absolutely can because it has for me. And one mm -hmm. of the biggest things I think about is um, what you just talked about with that limbic system immediately going becoming aroused in any situation in which there is no full control and the second anyone so i try in my brain when i'm about to meet a client or when it's somebody i know after having met them that that they've been through some trauma and they're they're dealing with it to be as present as i possibly can before i step into that room with them before i get on the phone with them because like you said don't give a a traumatized client a reason to act like a traumatized client i can't think of a, a more of a way for someone to go immediately into some fight or flight defense mode hyper vigilant than an attorney that's not there you can tell they're not there and they're not communicating well about a process they probably know nothing about and they're putting they're attempting to put full faith in you and so when i get before i pick up the phone i i become I try to kind of center myself and take some deep breaths and 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 I know that my goal in that phone call or maybe that meeting with them in person or whatever it is is to review what we've done talk about what we're doing and then give them some and I know that the legal most legal proceedings there's always like a read and react you know like we'll have to see what happens depending on what happens with the right. thing that we're talking about today but give sure. some indication of what the future looks like. Where are we going? Yeah. Like, so with my personal injury, I, I, with clients, I break the case into phases, right? Like we're in the treatment phase right now. And then the next phase will be negotiate, you know, like negotiating. And, and then after that, maybe litigation, even if it's just yeah. vague like that, clients appreciate that. And I think it, it helps them, you know, and I know that you're saying there's like a biological change that is not is irreversible to some extent. But the better that you can prepare yourself for those phone calls or those meetings by saying, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to talk about briefly what we've, what we've done, what, where we got to, to here. Here's what we got to accomplish. And here's what may happen vaguely as, you know, as, as, you know, as, I guess as specific as we possibly can do it. And I think that that, yeah. that works. I think the other piece is, you know, really review your notes before you talk to them right because if they if they have to tell you details yes. over and over 100 that hypervigilance is like they're they're saying <laughs> like, this yes. person is Better not writing, Rod, for sure they are not taking me serious they're not listening yeah, they to don't me. know my case how in the world could they ever defend me if they can't remember that 100 this is what happened and so um the other That's thing I so say true. Have, if you ever get into that situation yeah. where that happens, and you can just you can feel the energy shift to oh, them yeah. going, wait a minute. I'm telling I've them what it. my case is. hundred percent. Yeah, I've done it. I've made the mistake. And it's like, you know, and 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 sometimes you know, the other thing I say to staff is to tell me again why we're upset with a traumatized client acting like a traumatized client. I mean, clearly we 
you know, if we understand them, we aren't going to be upset with them. This is, we're going to expect some of this and we're going to develop um, some skills in, in managing it. And so. Um, well, and that's a good, that's, you know, we talk about this, not just being for lawyers, but for all legal professionals, whether it's your, you know, anywhere from the intake person that answers the phones or secretary to paralegals, legal assistants to the attorney is, is being aware of that. And, and I said at the beginning, stop calling them difficult clients and start calling them traumatized clients. And I'm, I know like you don't actually call them traumatized clients. That's not what I mean, but you change in your, your in, Yes. And, and, and stop saying. They, yeah. And if you think they don't know, you're kidding yourself. They, they can like that hypervigilance is like a, a glance that is that is of frustration a glance that is of um in any way demeaning to them um man that, well and, that and so if you can sense. put a if, and if you can put a title on it to say look this person's working through some trauma then you can go what are your what are your three most common symptoms of trauma hypervigilance right easy startle response and 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 you can say how do i avoid those three things or you know whatever however many you want to address depending on against the client and how do we do that right and so if you change it from oh god here comes here comes karen to karen's been through a lot and we need to acknowledge that and so what karen is eliciting is symptoms of trauma so here's how we're going to change our mindset and the way we approach our interactions with Karen to make Karen feel better because Karen's mm -hmm. in a situation where she's completely out of control or everything in her body and everything in her brain is yelling, not safe, even for the attorney. Run for your life. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think, I think that that by itself can change your practice, you know, and, and, so that's actually a great segue into secondary trauma and burnout, which are, I'm going to ask you to, to nutshell those again. What, so tell us about secondary trauma and burnout. So and let's other, start with burnout. I mean, we'll start with burnout because I, I think, you know, the, the symbol that we use is this infinity symbol of mm -hmm. there's no beginning or end. It can start on one side or it can start on the other side. And, and burnout is, um, it is these, so the term that's often being used now is organizational stressors, mm -hmm. uh, frustrations uh, in terms of management and inconsistencies in policies and procedures and, and the amount of energy that it takes to do my job every day in the organization that I'm at? Do I get enough supervision? Do I get enough support? Um, do I, does my boss um, allow for collaboration or is it all very hierarchical? And so, um, you know, there are lists of symptoms or of, of management um, behaviors that, that lead to burnout. And the thing that most people miss about um, organizational stress is that the first symptom that you get is like the sense of disillusionment. And you kind of spoke to it earlier when you said, you know, I, I think I'm just not very good at this. 
-hmm. And that's where people begin to, to get. And it doesn't start as a big bomb or a big, you know, event. It starts very gradually and slowly. And um, that disillusionment is, I need to work harder because I'm not as good as I, I need to be. And I'm not helping as many people. And it's funny, you know, people will often say to me, don't you think it should be com uh, uh, empathy fatigue? And I say, well, if you look at the definition of empathy as opposed to the definition of compassion, compassion is empathy with a belief that I should be able to help this person. And so often um, in my world, in the mental health world, I can't help that person for whatever reason. And uh, from just our conversations, there are oftentimes where the insurance companies or, you know, there's just circumstances where even with your best effort, you're probably not going to be able to get what you think this person deserves. And so that begins to create a, a sense of doubt or people will talk about um, imposter syndrome and, and those kinds of things. So I, I think or, or from when I was practicing work comp, you're not getting it maybe at the speed you'd like to get it at. Right. The, the example would be, you know, a person gets hurt on the job, they're off work, they're not earning wages, and then the the, the insurance carrier den denies the claim, right? And so you file for a hearing to go have have it heard by in front of an administrative law judge. And that takes time, and time is not something that client might have because right. of not earning wages. And so it's the it's the you're right, it's not like one catastrophic moment that causes burnout. It's when you have 30 of those going on or 10 of those, you know, 10, whatever the yeah. case, but you got them and you're just, there's nothing you can do about it. No matter how you pound the table, it's what you're hearing is in, you know, five weeks. And that, that, that feeling of helplessness, like I want to help. I believe what we're doing. And, you know, I believe in this case and that it's, it was wrongfully denied, but you got to wait to get there, I guess. Is that, that would be. Yeah, absolutely. Over and over think of the end. Well, and think of the energy that it takes to go to work every day knowing, and, and I think about that workman's comp case where, you know, this is more the secondary trauma or the vicarious trauma of here's a person you've become kind of uh, comfortable working with and, and you, you, they're really t telling you their struggle and mm -hmm. I can't pay my bills and I'm not going to have Christmas it was for Christmas. my kids this year. I know exactly. Yeah, it was Christmas and he sent me an email yeah. and said, how do you think I should pay for Christmas gifts with this being denied? And how heavy that weighs on someone who is practicing with empathy and with compassion. If you're just like, look, this is what it is. I mean, I can, I can, you can leave it at the door. That's fine. But when you get that email and you read it, and meanwhile, you're with your family, you know, it, there's a toll. And yeah. so that's what we call vicarious trauma or secondary okay. trauma. Yeah. And so it's the exhaustion of working in an environment where you really don't have as much control as maybe people think you do as an attorney. Clients may think, well, you know, you're an attorney. You, you should be able to fix this. And then so the, the trauma piece is... The, the consistent interaction with people and their symptoms and the, the constant hypervigilance. And, you know, you make a statement that you think is a safe statement that 
the person gets upset at and and now you're dealing with those things so um and so i think people get compassion fatigue in one of two ways i think that they become exhausted from their day-to-day -day work environment and then the the kind of traumatic symptoms that and when i'm fully energized i can manage pretty well and kind of know where i end and my client begins and so that the more exhausted I am, the more the trauma narratives, the stories, the symptoms begin to impact me. And, and now we now we're swinging through the through the loop. Or I have a case that is just catastrophically difficult, and I don't know what to do about it. And the more I go to work, the more exhausted I get, and the more I begin to doubt myself. And so it could start with a traumatic story, like a when you think about some of the just horrific, like the shootings and things that um, can be really traumatizing to the attorney. And then every little problem at the firm now is a big problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, the infinity symbol, like the, the sideways eight, you know, where it, it never mm -hmm. starts and it doesn't begin. It just loops in and out of itself is the perfect embodiment of secondary trauma and burnout because one doesn't cause the other. And it's not that you can fix one and then prevent the other one because they, they play off of each other. And I think that's a really good explanation of it is, yeah. um, you know, I, I sometimes in our presentations, we'll talk about the the case with the, 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 the mom of the little boy. And it was, I don't know, probably not that, you know, a couple of years ago, but I walked into the intake and I heard, uh, which is like our first meeting where I'm hearing the story for the first time. And mm -hmm. it was a particularly normal day. I don't feel that I walked into it any more stressed out than, than usual, but it was a, a, a boy was with a babysitter and there was a malfunction with the water heater in the basement of the building. And the babysitter told the, the, the son to go wash his hands and when he turned the faucet instead of it like gradually getting hotter it came out scalding hot and it burned both hands and the kid happened to be the same age as my son at the time and i had an emotional reaction that i couldn't control i could not keep that the professional facade and and i think about that a lot with the infinity symbol and what was is that the the kind of um the blurring of my professional life and my personal life sure. that that is the secondary trauma and then that leads to you know to going back to the and being like i can't even think about returning voicemails or i can't even think about the, no. the to do or the task list you know what i mean or is it that the task list was so big and and i was so i guess like burned candle on both ends that by the time i walked into that meeting i just didn't have any more energy to to kind of prepare myself or defend from that emotional effect. And I guess the answer is both, right? Or yes. Well, I think it's both. And I think um, I'm trying to think who, who wrote this quote, but he said that burnout shouldn't be called burnout. It should be called rust out mm -hmm. because it's a slow deterioration in the, in the individual's sort of, psyche and their mental health and their uh, their level of exhaustion that it becomes normal like we're we're so impaired for so long that being impaired becomes normal mm -hmm. or that being anxious becomes normal or hypervigilance becomes normal and that it's, it only takes a couple 
you know. <laughs> and I'm smiling when you say that, not because it, it's, it's a terrible yeah. thing to experience, and I have experienced it. But if you, depending on which attorney you ask, you're not doing it right if you don't feel that way. Like, what do you mean yeah. you're not strung out? What do you mean you're not at the office till 11 o'clock at night, you know, because you're so in, inundated with work? Like, that's like a, and I think that's the old guard changing over, but like that's, if you're not doing that, you're not doing it right. You're you're not working hard enough. And I think that's uh, that's changing because of my generation and the yeah. generation coming in is saying, um, no, we're going to live our life you know, and we want to have one as well as help people through the legal profession. Well, it's going to be interesting as the millennials move through that. That's, that's an issue. I'm a millennial dad. (laughs) Take it easy. I'm an early millennial, but don't, don't. No, I'm not saying anything negative. I'm just saying, (laughs) you know, it's funny. I remember uh, um, I was looking for an office. Uh, this is several years ago, and it, I looked in an office building that your office, your firm was in, and it had a gym in the bottom, in the in the basement, that had a um, some workout machines and had a a, a a racquetball court. And I remember saying to you, "Do you ever get down and use that?" And the look on your face was like, "It's time to go use that." And you know, it just was so like it's indicative of the struggle that yeah yeah, i don't have time to go do that like i'm busy even though it's right there in the building and i could do that i don't do that and i think let me just say one other thing one of the things that we find is that the things that people use to feel better Mm -hmm. like if i had a dollar for every person that i've talked to who said you know, I used to go to the gym. I used to run. I used to dance. I used to, mm-hmm. you know, play tennis. I used to do these things. And then I'll say, well, what do you do now? And they say, I just go home and sit on the couch. I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. And the idea of the first thing that tends to be kind of um, ignored or jettisoned out of our lives are the things that take energy, but that give us energy. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, going to that gym would be a really good thing, but not if I'm a, not if I'm exhausted. Yeah, and I think also from a law law firm management perspective, um, that infinity symbol of you know I've got this huge deposition, I can't be bothered with the day to day activities right now, or I've got this big case, and so that all has to wait. And then what that does to staff right, who have to then shoulder the burden of that, what you thought, would it, what was probably a small situation, which is now a growing situation because that client can't talk to the attorney. And, and then what happens with them being disillusioned with the attorney? I mean, that all is organizational trauma, right? And, and that is definitely a huge symptom of, I guess, secondary trauma. And it's why they, why they coexist is because because there isn't a cause and effect well you know that that description that you just gave of preparing for the trial and it's always in your mind what does that do at home right you know like that idea of you know talking to your partner but you're really thinking about all the stuff that you need to do for that trial 
Well, what is the story you said about when we were when I was a kid playing Monopoly with you? <laughs> Not to put you on trial. What did you say when I was a kid? Uh, I was writing my dissertation, and you know, my my brain was always on the dissertation, and we were playing a board game, and you said, "Hey, you want to play this game?" And I said, "Oh yeah, I'll take a break." And and uh, you would say to me, "Dad, Dad, it's your turn." And my I'm thinking about the the dissertation and i'd say oh yeah yeah yeah," and I'd, I'd play and then you would roll and my mind's drifted off and you'd say dad dad it's your turn and after about three times you looked at me and you said if you have more important things to do i probably <laughs> i i suggest you go do them and it's like oh man i'm a terrible if father if that story doesn't <laughs> resonate with attorneys i mean yeah. and i think about like the the i um I call it uh, like the, I can blank on what I would call it, but it's like um, the Tourette's. It's like, it's like a anxiety Tourette's, you know, it's like you kind of jolt and you kind of, you know, say profanity because you think about that one thing that it just yeah. kind of is, juts out into your brain. Like when you're in the middle of watching a movie or you're trying to have some downtime or whatever it is, is you kind of just jump right into when does that thing do, right? Like where, where does that live? You know, but yeah, yeah. so I, I think that I, I said there's no cause and effect, but in reality, they both cause and affect each other. And and so then people might say, OK, well, if there is no cause and effect, there's no way to fix one to fix the other one. Then what do you do? And I think the answer, at least through our journey through this, is being aware of it. Right. Um, and I think that the term trauma-informed legal practice means you are implementing trauma tactics, right? You're learning about the symptoms. You're learning how to better represent clients and to make them more comfortable. Um, but at the same time, you're informing yourself on what it looks like. And just seeing it and just like knowing that that is what's coming allows you to prepare for it. Because I think a lot of the, that infinity symbol is like, I just don't know what's next. You know, I've got this huge case, I've got a million voicemails, and you kind of start to whirl yourself into to a tornado where you're like, I, I don't even know. And then you get helpless, right? And you go like, I, I, and you start having all these negative symptoms. But if you can just, you can just be informed on why you feel that way you'll make little steps in your day to say this is coming and I know it's coming. So here's what I'm going to do to start to combat it. Does that, does that make sense? Cause there is, there is a way to oh, fix it. Yeah. Mindfulness, like really being right. mindful of what's, what's going on in my day. And one of the things we haven't talked about is that the more anxious we are, the less our prefrontal cortex are, um, alert and awake and activated and so the more anxious like you were just talking about this sort of growing spiral of anxiety mm -hmm. that the more anxious you get the less energy the less ability you have to do any of the things that are on that list mm -hmm. and now you look at the list and it's like i can't even decide which one is the highest priority yep. and so that idea of mindfulness exercise time out um are all key and when i when i talk to organizations and I, you know my my discussion with organizations is mostly in the mental health world sure but the first thing um when a company decides that they're going to do something about this is i have the ceo 
write a letter to every to the employees that say, um, you know, our 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 job is important. That helping people, you know, that the that are the reason everyone is here is because they care, and the compassion fatigue is a normal part of our lives, and that we're going to start to address that. And I think that that, you know, again, in 20 years that we've been talking about it, I don't have a very hard sell anymore. It's it's a pretty easy thing. And I, I think this is where the legal profession is growing. And when we were talking earlier that we would love to get in front of some um, more um, senior partners to talk, just to see their view of that. and. To, to have yeah. them begin to say to their firm, look, we get it. This is hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to do the best we can do, but we're also going to take care of each other. Yeah. Um, so. I know that when, and I think you have to do some self-assessing too, right? And to mm -hmm. say, where are my triggers or where are my things that, that really drain my energy fast? And I know that one of mine was having conversations with clients where I feel like, We've had that conversation and I'm rehabbing it. And um, and so what I have mentioned, we've talked about a little earlier ago where I go, this is like the blueprint of this conversation is we're going to talk about what we've did and we're going to be talk about what we need to accomplish today. And then we're going to talk about where we're going with it. If is by just implementing that with my conversations with is already less draining than kind of been like picking up the phone and being like, okay, where's this conversation going to go? Right. And so if you have 10 of those a day and 10 of them were just completely draining so much so that, like you said, you get to a point where you're like, I can't even, I can't even imagine knocking this task list off. And so that'll just be tomorrow's problem, which everybody knows it just snowballs at that point and little problems become big problems. If you can just say, this is how these 10 phone calls are going to go. That's already going to save energy to spend where it needs to go. Another one is don't stack your 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 meetings that you know are going to require a lot of your your attention, right? You're a lot of your empathy. You're going to have to be compassionate for for whatever the reason is. Don't stack those on top of each other because you know all that's going to do is 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 drain your energy. And so when you can start to kind of shift your day and say like, okay, this is a big thing that. I know on a weekly basis or daily basis, always I'm exhausted afterwards, right? Um, change, change where that is in the day, change how you approach that shift something, but, but that will, that will make, be a big difference. Um, yeah. So I think that's a good, a good segue into like what can be done about it. And I think you already nailed the first one, which is buy-in right from management, buy-in from firm ownership, um, leadership, to say these are this is real we're all experiencing it from top down all the way through and so what are we going to do about it as an organization as opposed to like i mentioned with the old guards wearing your stress and wearing your exhaustion like a badge of honor that if you're not here at 11 o'clock at night then you're you're not doing it right and you're not working hard enough and so I think if you can get buy-in from ownership and leadership, that's, it's a big step, but it is the first step. Yeah, I think that, I think like, you know, if teams really communicate well, 
and and there's team development um you know where the attorney is talking to the paralegal about where they are and if 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 we get any of these calls how we're going to manage it because i'm really beat today and you know mm-hmm. like like rather than i'm just not going to take the call and then yeah. it's it's going to fall back on other people but you know always communicating um I think that's mistaken in the legal profession as weakness. That if you say to your paralegal, look, I'm exhausted today, or I've just had a really emotional intake, you know, we need to think about how we're going to take calls for the rest of the day or, you know, whatever it is, you feel like that's weakness. But what it, I don't, I think it's more, um, boy, it really, what if, if it does anything, it affirms to them that they're not the only ones experiencing it, right? Because they're tired too, you know? And I'm not just blowing you off. I'm right. Right. Like we need to work together and support each other. And, um, you know, if you, if you can take that call today and I'll, I'll make sure that I'm available for other things. And the, uh, the, and again, you know, not just uh, put them in my voicemail. Listen, I don't have it right now for that schedule them for tomorrow morning and I'll, I'll, it's the first call I'll make or whatever that is. Acknowledge yeah. it and communicate about it. Yeah, I think that's, you're right. That's huge. Um, I think then, like supervision and having access to more senior members is a, who, who get it and who buy in is really critical. In our world, in the mental health world, we see supervision as self-care so right. that you know, I'm not sitting with a caseload of 20 traumatized clients and I'm not sure what to do, but, um, you know, I do supervision all day, a couple of days a week. And that's what we talk about. And, and supervision is usually about like ethics and like the clinical case but supervision also needs to be restorative supervision. The idea that, how are you? How are you doing? How are you holding up? You know, have you been taking your vacation? And how often do people feel that if I take a vacation, I'm leaving the team down because mm-hmm. everyone's so busy and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, having an employee assistance program. Um, well, having... supervision from a legal perspective um you know, the, the, I think that law schools are changing. I mean, the law school I went to had um, a lot of like um, classes that were more geared towards actual practice as, you know, we had our, obviously our, our, you know, our constitutional law or criminal law, all those classes, but they did a good job of also having like deposition classes and mediation where we would like role play mediation, but that can only go so far. Right, because you know that they're role playing, right? And you know that it's all pretend until you're in your first actual really intense moment. Um, you have no idea what what it's like, right? And and so supervision is instead of I guess again the old guard of throw them in the deep end and just see how they do uh, is a real solid way to burn out and to have secondary trauma to such an extent that you're leaving the practice in the first three years, um, as opposed to let's do this together and then let's debrief after it's over. How was that? What did you think of, you know, X, Y, Z? 
what emotions were you feeling when such and such happened? Here's here's how that was really good. Here's how that went really bad. And it's really rare that that happens or yeah, that happens all the time. All of those things are ways for people to get more um, of a sense of like a sense of balance, right? Because if you go into a, a really traumatic, let's just say deposition or whatever, and you've never done one, you have no idea if that's good. Did you do good? Should you be preparing to get your stuff packed? How did that go? And if without somebody saying that's no, that was a normal one or that was really rough and they aren't all like that, like without any of that, how can anyone get a sense of bearing of what the profession is like? So yeah, supervision is crucial. And I think especially for early stages of, 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 you know, legal practitioners or paralegals too, to say, you know, I'm, they're new to being, you know, a legal assistant and to say, am I, you know, am I doing good? Am I on track? Like, do, is this how this is supposed to go? And for the attorney to just be like, yeah, it's, everything's fine. And, you know, go back to your desk. That person walks away going, I have no idea if I'm doing good. And that sense of like unsurety, all that does is, like you mentioned, spins the anxiety. And so for the attorney to be able to go like, this is a, this is welcome to the firm, right? You're brand new. This is a really rough time or this is a really busy time because things are really slow because, and it's going to speed up and it'll look more like X, Y, Z. Those early are like, truly crucial for anybody to be able to say okay that's okay so that's good to know so that was a bad example or that was what they all look like does that does that make sense i'm sure you have that same way in therapy like that was a rough session and here's why well and we had um you know i sat behind the mirror in the clinic and watched new counselors practice for years and that was one of the things we did okay yeah that was that was a pretty normal, like you did great. That was a difficult client. They didn't give you much, yep. and so I was constantly normalizing or, or saying, "Wow, that was really hard." <laughs> like that was that was tough. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think about like law school. I think about the Socratic method, mm-hmm. and and there's a growing body of literature on how traumatizing the Socratic method is. Mm-hmm. And if, if supervision is in any way similar to that, that, uh, that can focus on, well, what does the law say? And, you know, what's the, uh, uh, some supervision just needs to be exactly what you said. That was tough. Let, mm-hmm. Let's talk about how, how are you feeling afterwards? How, how are you, you know, mm-hmm. like go home and, you know, get some rest and come back and we'll do it tomorrow. That I don't know that that's always the case. And um, I don't, I don't know that it's, there's a lot of fields where that's not always the case. So. Uh, yeah. And, I, and I'm sure, you know, that's yeah. how, how most firms handle it, but they, sh- as they should, but yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you come out of that meeting and aren't told that was really rare, how bad that went or how intense that was, I think you go into the next one a lot more confident saying, okay, well, it can't be that bad because that was rare, right? That's what the senior person told me is that was, that was really rare that that happened. So I'm going to be a lot more comfortable than to be like, uh, the next one might look exactly like that, you know, for, for whatever, but yeah. And then, um, you know, peer support, I think, uh, 
having meetings to be able to just, you know, because you go home and a lot of what we deal with is confidential and you're not able to talk about it maybe to the extent that you would need to, um, to be able to talk to your peers and, 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 you know, within the firm and say like, this case is really, I'm having a hard time with it because X, Y, Z, um, you know, or, or other people outside of the firm that do what you do that you can say, like, I'm struggling with this, this portion of the, of the, of the practice. What are you, how are you handling it? But yeah, peer support's huge. Well, I think we, I think we covered, uh, covered it all. Covered a lot of ground. Yes. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being, uh, our first guest. Uh, yes. it's an honor. And, uh, we'll continue to, to keep spreading the word and talking when people will let us talk and, and writing when, uh, when given an opportunity. So I appreciate it. And uh, where can you be found? Which you have a website or anything you, you, uh, yeah, my about? website is, is, uh, drmikebarnes.com and uh, the foundries is um, forgingnewlives.com. I know our CEO, Ben Court, is going to be one of your guests. Yep. He's really an expert in cannabis, THC, and and I, I'm really excited about the, the podcast and the, the different topics that you're going to be talking about. So um, I will be. I, I am too, and I think it's going to be just different facets of things that affect attorneys' mental health. And so, yeah, Ben, Ben, hopefully he's going to come on and talk about self-medication and attorneys um, should be pretty interesting chatting with him. So appreciate you coming on. And uh, Sure. My pleasure. We'll talk later.